the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Online at 1160hope.com. There you can find old shows. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. Ian did a lot of great shows while I was gone. Almost intimidating good shows. <laughs> I take zero credit for that. I think that's that's all the guests. It's the best sign of a host right there, man. Oh, like well, Just bringing them through. I'll take that. I, I was just, like, I, I got to get back. I'm going to lose my role. He actually cut his vacation short by two weeks. He's getting antsy. Oh, it's good. It's good. You can also text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG followed by your comment. Uh, hey, man, I've been back now a couple of days from California. I am still struggling to wake up. I feel like I've now entered into your world where you always tell people I'm tired. Like whenever, how you doing? I'm tired. I've got it for like a week. Like I feel I'm starting to feel a little bit of compassion towards you. I think do you, do you get you're starting to starting. feel yep. a little bit of compassion. We've been doing this show together since January. That's right. And today you're starting to begin to feel a little bit of compassion. And it's only because I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, let's let's dive into the deep sea of that psychology sometime. No, I am fully narcissistic and self-centered. You I also can't be jet-lagged from being on the West Coast. It's not like you were in Japan. I know. I'm weak that way. <laughs> it is. like My daughter is still like, Dad, it's like this in California. I'm like, we've been back for a couple days now. We're good. But we should be okay. But now I'm the one saying I'm not okay. Well, so It's okay to not be anyway, okay, Brian. What's fun to do as a radio show is you've taught us over the last couple of months when you're tired and just a little sleep deprived. Like that's... <laughs> That's it's really the fun preaching thing, so. sleep deprived. That's maybe the most scary, I think, because yeah. it's like, oh boy, I am not totally here right now. I guess it packs. I guess people are like, oh, we got to go today. Ian's tired. <laughs> yeah. Anytime I, I remember preaching once a couple months ago, and I was like really tired and feeling really sick, and so I was like, hey, everybody, I'm on a lot of cough syrup right now. So this is either going to be terrible or hilarious. <laughs> but either way, <laughs> either I won't way, remember it. <laughs> have your cell phones ready, right? <laughs> oh, that's really funny. So anyway. Uh, one thing we like to do is you and I just kind of throw um, articles at each other uh, online, not at literally at we, each other. I like to throw them. We throw them yeah. at each other. We just things we find interesting. Uh, and this is one you sent our way. It's called this uh, the Christian addiction to control and then parenthetically and how to maybe stay fr- free from it. The Christian addiction to control. And I think it struck us both especially as pastors, as something uh, interesting. I've never thought of a, of control as an addiction. So uh, why don't you fill this out for us a little bit? What are they talking about? So it starts uh, saying this. I've seen it too many times. The church wants others to do less blank 
and more blank. Mm. And you could probably fill in your own blanks, right? Less, you know, drinking, cursing, fornicating, more praying, more tithing, more serving. And mostly in that specific church, not anywhere else. And it says, but we have to ask ourselves, do we want them to start, stop doing these things for their benefit or ours? I think we have confused salvation with behavior management mm. and traded the good news for good advice, which is really um, convicting because you and I are both pastors. And I think one of the things that can be really challenging is that even maybe silently, if, if we, if we imagine a community, a family where grace really is at the forefront, mm. I think sometimes the, the quiet voice, sometimes that can get a little bit louder in, in certain seasons is that like, well, you can't be that gracious. Yeah. You can't be that forgiving, right? It'd be chaos. It'd be, and I've heard other pastors say like, man, if you really just love people right where they're at, well then gosh, what kind of church would that end up looking like? And I think sometimes in the, in the name of uh, wisdom or in the name of healthy management skills, I think sometimes we can sort of choke out some of what the transformative power of the gospel is meant to do in our lives. Mm. And, uh, and I think, I don't think it's just pastors that feel this. I think yeah. this honestly is, is oftentimes what a lot of the uh, internal complaints can be, but like that question of, are we preaching good news or just good advice? And sometimes good advice, the thing behind the thing when you're talking about good advice is we want you to behave differently, which right. doesn't mean that we don't necessarily at some point want people to behave differently, but it's because what they're doing maybe is toxic or it's divisive, not, yes. not starting with that. And I think that's uh, getting that order out of whack can be really problematic. That's really good. I remember when I started preaching more regularly, uh, a good mentor of mine, he used the phrase, and he didn't come up with this. This is a well-known phrase, but the phrase behavior modification that right. oftentimes we preach for behavior modification. I think we do that for a couple different reasons. One is uh, it's easier to measure, right? <laughs> like, yeah, right. oh yeah, no, my people are doing this or are doing that. Uh, but two, Grace, like you said, and the gospel and everything is just so messy. And so uh, behavior modification gives helps us get our arms around things a little bit better. The truth of the matter is behavior is important. Behavior changing over time is important. Uh, the difficulty is it's just a fruit of somebody uh, uh, understanding the gospel more and more. As I grasp what Jesus is doing in my life, and as the Holy Spirit is sanctifying me and at work in my life, then my my behavior begins to uh, modify. It begins right. to change. It becomes to be more Christ-like. Instead, you know, we like to throw the bracelet on that says, what would Jesus do? And like, you just need to act better and be better. Right. And we reverse those. And I think calling it an addiction to control uh, is a convicting and an interesting way to look at it. Well, and he, he talks about control being something that we want, not something that we need. And I think even identifying that he uses this, uh, this quote from Danny Silk, who said, powerful people do not try to control other people. They know it doesn't work and that it's not their job. Their job is to control themselves. And mm. I just think it's a really it's a really convicting article. Uh, and I don't know that you feel this kind of control freak pull in you as much. I certainly do. And it's something it's an it's a really ugly part of, I think, some of my wiring mm. uh, to just be sometimes maybe too involved and some of the things beneath that are like, okay, so I don't really believe that they can do as good a job yeah, or is that, a, yeah. you know, that, that, that can be even in terms of team management can be really struggling, but it ends with this, this prayer. Um, it says, God, keep my anger from becoming meanness. Keep my sorrow from collapsing into self pity. Keep my heart soft enough to keep breaking. Keep my anger mm. turned towards justice, not cruelty. Remind me that all of this, every bit of it is for love. Keep me fiercely kind. Amen. Yeah. 
fiercely kind is like such a compelling idea to me because I feel like so often kindness actually is seen as weakness and the people at the, you know, quote unquote top of most hierarchical structures tend to probably, I imagine, be pretty controlling. And right. so there's something in us that said, like, well, that worked for them. <laughs> yeah. But to really hold that up and see that through the lens of Jesus and say that that's not the way that we're called to live. Yeah. And I think the lens of Jesus is an interesting way to talk about it. Uh, the author here writes that Jesus never controlled Peter's, Peter's stubbornness or Thomas's doubt, not even Judas's betrayal. Yeah, and, right. And that's a very interesting thought. Like, what well, Jesus didn't sit down and be like, hey, Peter, we've got to round out these edges on you here before I send you out. And we've got to, it would have made his life a lot easier <laughs> if he had. Yeah, right. Uh, but instead, Jesus uh, just keeps revealing who he is. And over time, there becomes change. And sometimes, you know, over time, it didn't work for, you know, Judas still betrayed him. Yes. And so, uh, yeah, you ask, you said, I don't know if I'm a, you said you're a controlling person. You don't know about me. I feel like I'm growing to become more controlling. Oh, really? Yeah, I do. And 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 so that's why this article struck me is like, I, I do feel an increasing pull towards wanting to con- micromanage things in my right. church, micromanage right. things in my family. And that's a really hard struggle. Well, and I think it is worth remembering too, that controlling others is not a fruit of the spirit. Self-control is, oh, that's really you know, good, and I think that we often get that order out of whack yeah. and that uh, at the heart of love doesn't mean that we don't call people on their garbage and say, hey, man, you're, what you're doing right now is destructive. I'm not saying at all that we don't actually have to go toe to toe with people sometimes right. and say, hey, this is just bad news for you. Um, but to start with the posture of love and grace is sounds really, really great and is way harder to do. Absolutely. Well, that's uh, we would love to hear your feedback on this. What is what are control issues? What are what do you do? You struggle with something like this. You can do that at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can always text us at six, eight, six, eight. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Twitter, at Common Good Talk Podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcasts. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Grateful uh, for those of you who do this, I don't know why I ask you this question every week, but uh, weekend plans? Weekend plans? Why do you ask me that every week? Anything fun? Where are you preaching this week? No, let's get let's get behind the question. What what is really? I love going the weekend, so I'm I'm always hopeful. You got something big going on. <laughs> I'm going to a football game at my alma mater on oh, Saturday nice. with my son. Playoffs. It's gonna be nice. fun. Uh, my wife has like two or three markets, so I am. Can you explain this, Mark? You said it a couple. I know what she's doing, but yeah. like, is she? What is she selling? Selling for? Is this? Are we allowed to talk advertising? <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, my, for my wife, absolutely. There yeah. you go. She uh, she's making these handcrafted earrings. She's also making some bags and T-shirts now as well. Uh, and 10% of all the proceeds go to support uh, women in her mother's homeless ministry. Wow. So. It's awesome because if I could just brag a little bit, Do it. we did a whole hour with her while, while you were gone. Yep. But yep. her, it's really cool because it's not just like raising random dollars to send to a random ministry. Mm-hmm. These are actual women that we get to like know and do life with because they're a part of her mother's ministry. Wow. So one, the craftsmanship is insane. Like she's just a really talented artist. Two, it's going to support this like really great awesome. cause that has all sorts of meaning. If, you know, if you remember. Her mom started the ministry yep, yep. after she lost her son, so it's like a deeply kind of family type uh, yeah. passion. And uh, there's just a lot of really cool people in our city and surrounding areas that are hosting markets and different events. And wow. we're partnering with uh, my friend Shannon 
opened a market or opened a, a store in Aurora called Wickwood House. So she's going to start carrying some of uh, my wife's earrings. That's really and, cool. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's Does been really neat. Does your wife herself make all of this stuff? All of them by hand. Yep. Wow. Yep. That's crazy. Yep. She's like making, sanding, and cooking them in our oven and piecing it all together. It's all like from her brain. This is, I find this fascinating. I don't know if other people do. So one pair of earrings takes how long? Oh, for gosh. your wife to make. I don't. I don't know how she doesn't like in batches. Okay. But there's a lot of okay. like. See, I clearly don't have the terminology. A lot of like <laughs> s- swirly colors, and some of them have glitter on them, and some of them have like Two leather guys straps. Talking about this, like I, I literally, I look at it, and I go, I don't know how you made this color combination happen. Like it doesn't. That's wild. Compute for me at all. So I know that it takes a long time. I know that much. It's, but, and she's really, really meticulous about That's it. That's awesome. Well, now that we've given it this much time, what's the website again? Oh, commonmissionwomen.com. And you can hear stories and you can go to the shop and a bunch of other stuff. Well, there you go. I'm glad we got that plug out there. Oh, highly recommend you check it out. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, Christian Today, an article came out uh, entitled this, Knowing God's Love is Impossible. So when I saw this, I was like, oh, this is interesting. So let me read some of it to you. Uh, the author writes, knowing God is maybe the most central thing in the Christian life. Also, possibly the hardest. The other day, I was talking to a student, he writes, relatively new to a life of discipleship, who confided just how frustrating it is that he's taking so much time to grow. He lamented how much he struggles to trust God when others seem to do so with ease. As I struggled to think of how to encourage him, I remembered one of the most curious prayer requests in all of Scripture found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which I had just been working through. Towards the end of chapter 3, Paul asks, Out of his glorious riches, may God strengthen you with power through his Spirit uh, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all God's holy people, to grasp how wide, how long, and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love and surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's Ephesians three sixteen and nine through nineteen. And he writes, "We're tempted to glance over this uh, and think, okay, great. Paul prays that they understand God's love. Typical Paul prayer. What's the big deal?" But he says, "I was stopped short though when I realized Paul is asking that they be strengthened, that they have quote power to be able to know this love." that surpasses all knowledge. Let me pause there for a sec. Uh, is this something you hear from others or maybe feel from yourself that just kind of grasping God's love is a, uh, he calls it impossible, at least difficult, if not um, uh, if not an impossible task? I don't think it's uh, grasping that I hear mm-hmm. most often. I think it's believing. Mm. Like I, I shared with our staff even on Wednesday, I said, I think a lot of us understand that God loves us, but we don't necessarily think that he likes us. I think wow. I think that, that out a little bit. I really think that plagues particularly church workers more than anything. like we mm. get the we understand Jesus on the cross, but we don't necessarily get Jesus as or maybe even God as loving Father. Like I think mm. that like we sometimes feel like unwanted guests in God's house party, or uh. that He's really annoyed that we still haven't figured this thing out, or we're still struggling in this area of sin, or whatever. Like. The love, the big cosmic, I get to go to heaven, love. we like, yeah, yeah, I get that. But I think yeah. at our base level, a lot of us just aren't convinced that he likes us very much. Mm. Think about what would the results of that be and how we view God. I mean, that's Oh, yeah, that's constant, really per- constant performance. Yeah. You always have to be earning some kind of favor or affection from God. He's like a, he's like a uh, you know, disenfranchised father that mm. you know, you're always having to try to like please or perform. And you never really know where you stand. And that yeah. can lead to 
all sorts of either burnout or lethargy, I think, yeah. if you're always yeah. sort of obsessed with how to how, – I mean, think back to junior high when you really obsessively wanted someone to like you. Mm-hmm. What did you do? It was like an, an endless treadmill of performance. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that maybe on the surface looked normal, but like in your heart you knew, I'm just – I just want this person to like me. Yeah. Yeah. How do we start to – how do we start to break that down in people and in ourselves? I, I, I'm kind of distancing myself as if it's not a struggle. <laughs> How do we get begin to even grow away from that? Because that's such a uh, not a biblical view of God. But as you describe it, I'm like, yep, certainly been there. Yeah. Certainly that's a struggle. There are a couple of suggestions I would maybe give that maybe don't seem all that groundbreaking. But yep. one, reading about God's delight of us, mm-hmm. like really going after passages where that's Crystal clear, too. This is kind of a nerdy answer, but I think the more that we really understand justification by grace. Yeah. Um, so, like, justification, I don't know that we've ever really talked about this, is different than forgiveness. Because a forgiven person can still go and sin and be guilty again. It's yeah. more than being pardoned, right? Because a pardoned criminal still has a record. Justification is this, this as far as the East is from the West. Mm. Like, the choosing to no longer even remember your sins and your shortcomings. I think we don't really believe that at the yeah. core level, a lot yeah. of us. And we still think that it's like, yeah, it's Jesus. Plus mm. I need to be a really great pastor or I need to like really be nailing it at home all the time. Yeah. These are all good things, obviously. But I think when we really, really understand how much of that is just simply received and not achieved, I don't that's know. True. That's a, that's a pretty big paradigm shift. That's really good. And man, it is hard. It's not even where I thought we were going to go with this, but that's really hard and, and important to think about. Uh, the author, I think Derek Rickshaw, Rickshaw says, uh, I just butchered his name, but we can look it up. He <laughs> said, I hope my student gets encouragement from Paul's prayer in these. He says, first, it clarifies that inevitably strengthening takes time. Being rooted and established in love requires time spent experiencing the love of Christ when you are most unlovable hmm. and seeing the love of Christ extend towards others, uh, those it would never occur to you to love. And he says, further, coming to know God's love is not something we're meant to do alone. Hmm. That Paul teaches, uh, Paul teaches us that we come to know God, quote, together with all of God's holy people. Coming to know the immeasurable love of God is a group project uh, in the church, not a competition we engage in all by our lonesome. And he says, finally, that this is a prayer to God is the big tip off. Paul is asking for something that ultimately God can bestow by his grace as mm-hmm. a gift. Mm-hmm. He doesn't preach a gospel of I salvation by grace only to slip back into making knowing God a matter of intelligence, native smarts, efforts, or achieve goodness. I really like that. Pray for it. Like that's not the end all answer always, but yeah. sometimes it's it is helpful to go, okay, Paul prayed for something like this. Maybe yeah. we should as well. Well, and, and to know and to rest in the fact that you are far, far more than yes. your best or worst thing. Yes. I think we tend to go to both those extremes that I am as good as my accomplishments or I am the sum of the worst things I've done. And I think just to remember that God's delight in you is not based on your performance for him. Mm-hmm. And to, I think what this author is saying is to pray and to remember that even the knowledge of that is a gift. Yes. So that it makes sense, I think, to start and end with prayer and to remind each other of the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you can find that at Christianity Today. We'll put it on our Facebook page if it's not already there. Roy, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Every now and then we, we throw each other because I'm facing the window to uh-huh. the hallway. You are not. And people walk by here like we're zoo animals sometimes. Like They're not totally wrong. Yeah. Though, we're... Like sometimes it feels like people are looking like just observing us and we kind of wave at them. And 
They just throw us candy or something. We should set out like a little popcorn machine so people can just sit, <laughs> eat popcorn, and just watch it's us. A sign that says, please don't feed the host. <laughs> <laughs> no, please feed the host. I don't want that sign. Please feed the host. So uh, on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, Twitter at Common Good Talk, and online at 1160hope.com. We're grateful for all of you uh, who choose to spend some time with us, whether on podcast or on the radio uh, we're always grateful that anybody is listening to this, right? You ever sit back and be like, I can't believe anyone listens to me preach or talk on a radio. Like, All the time. <laughs> it's just crazy. And uh, I think some people have inflated egos where they're like, there should be millions of people listening to us. I'm like, there's anybody? <laughs> I think I always have a little bit of look of surprise when I preach. Like, oh, you came back. Yeah. That's amazing. I was at the college, at Wheaton uh, for a homecoming this past weekend, and I ran into somebody. And we were just chatting, and she goes, uh, hey, I saw on Facebook you did this. Uh, they always think we're doing a podcast, but they're like, you did this podcast with somebody else, and I, I totally listened to it. It was great. And I'm like, you did? That's it crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and so it is always weird. Like sometimes you and I come in here, we just kind of talk and talk and talk, and then right. we go home. But right. Oh, <laughs> way we go. So. Somebody is going, amen. That is what you do. You talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. <laughs> Please read another liner. Go. Uh, so uh, not to go against what I said at the last segment, but one of the pastors who I I listen to a lot, uh, have a, a respect for from a distance is a guy by the name of Matt Chandler out of the Village Church outside of Dallas, Texas. Uh, and Matt Chandler just wrote a new book that comes out of a lot of stuff he's experienced. If you know Matt Chandler's story at all, uh, on Thanksgiving Day in 2009, he collapsed from a brain tumor and was given two to three years to live. Uh, despite that diagnosis, today he is cancer-free and shares his experience of suffering in his new book, Joy in the Sorrow, How a Thriving Church and Its Pastor Learned to Suffer Well. So it's this concept of suffering, and how do we as past uh, people, uh, Christ followers, how do we suffer well? And this is such an important topic, because how many times have we read people who their main thing about the faith that keeps them from the faith or causes them to leave the faith is this concept of suffering. So let me read a little bit of this article And then I would love just your take on how we can teach people to suffer well, how we can suffer well. Uh, He says, uh, the errors tend to be people have an over-realized eschatology or an under-realized eschatology. Would you just define for everybody eschatology real quick? I was going to ask you to. No, no, you got this. You got this. Let's just keep reading. People want to know what it is. Yeah, it's, uh, why am I drawing a blank? You need to go. Eschatology. I believe in you. I'm going to tell you at the end. (laughs) Ooh, is that a pun? And when you, yes, it's the end times. It's our study of the end times. People are like, these are the worst two pastors. Anyway, when you err in either one of those directions, this is the second time in two days you and I have gone back and forth. You answer, you answer, and I've given in on both of them. What does that say about us? I don't know. Or, or you. When you err, it does say a lot about me. When you err in either one of those directions, it actually adds a greater burden to the suffering itself. Although well-meaning, those who err on the side of over-realized eschatology tend to cherry-pick Bible verses and say that things just aren't true. We don't understand that the Bible is a single story and not a bunch of stories. Uh, And so when you pull two sentences out and try to form a doctrine around it or form a theological idea around it, then you're more than likely going to do greater harm than good. When you get outside of that story and you cherry-pick verses, you can really create whatever you think people want to hear. And I think well-meaning brothers and sisters, in that really dark moment, the impulse is, let me bring hope, when really you should bring presence. Instead, we've got these old taglines and fake promises that might happen. A breakthrough might happen. God might heal. Over-realized eschatology can be so devastating, he says. However, because it doesn't leave any space for someone to die or someone to get cancer 
and then ultimately die of that cancer without putting a weight on them that the word of God does not put on them. Hmm. Other Christians err on the side of underrealized eschatology and say that things are incomplete, the pastor said, Chandler said. With underrealized eschatology, all you've got is the will of God. So whatever the will of God is, that's what's going to happen. Don't even worry about it. Just ride it out. This mentality, Chandler, Chandler contended, does great harm to people who suffer and who want to be healed and indicates that the desire for healing is somehow ungodly. Uh, we certainly don't see David praying like that in the Psalms, he writes. We certainly don't see Paul praying like that in the New Testament. I mean, three times Paul's pleading with God, take this thorn from me, take this thorn from me. And Paul is expectant until he hears from God, no, my strength is going to be enough. But notice that Paul contends three times, and he doesn't seem to be embarrassed or feel like he needs to repent for the fact that he's perplexed but not crushed. I want us to believe together, Chandler writes. I want us to ask for the gift of faith while we're praying and expect God to heal while always having our hands wide open and believing that God is sovereign and good and he can be trusted with this outcome. What do you think of all this? Well, I, weirdly enough, this is a topic I actually really love talking about. I don't know what that says about me. Okay. Yeah, because it feels like, and a lot of the article kind of goes on to say, I think well-intending you know, preachers and teachers uh, are giving kind of half of the picture. Um, and he's very gracious, I think. I don't think, you know, anywhere in this article does he even kind of whiff of like accusation or people just trying to, you know, swindle well-meaning churchgoers. But I think uh, there is a real difficulty and this isn't the whole church, Big C Church. I think this is a particular struggle in the West. I think a lot of our brothers and sisters in the East actually have a a much more robust eschatology, a much more robust theology of suffering. It's I think it's time for us to to learn in a big way. Because even think about how we I was just talking about this uh, on Sunday, how we deal with funerals. Right, we we dress people up in their Sunday best, and we make their faces up, and we make them smile a little bit. And every funeral I've been to, I hear somebody look in the casket and say something like. Ah, he looks so good. And in my head, I'm always like, is that the point? Is this, that's not (laughs) for him. That's for us. That's for us to, you know, kind of as, kind of maybe appease some of our discomfort. And I think that we, not just suffering, but discomfort is something that we, in a lot of ways, kind of run from. But I, my wife, I think, actually said it best. She wrote this brilliant song about uh, the valley. And she says, uh, one of the lines of the song talks about the valley being where things grow. Mm. And I never even thought about like how beautiful an imagery that is. She's like, yeah, the mountaintops are great, but the valleys are where things grow. Mm. And that's kind of some of the premise of the article is it that is. suffering isn't something just to kind of get through, something to kind of like stomach until we can pull out of this. It's like, yes. oh, seasons of suffering and pain are actually where like the roots go down deep. It's like where we actually are purified and we're grown and they're not, you know, there is a lot of really terrible theology that like well god gave you cancer so that he would grow you i don't think that's the case at all but i can certainly say in my own life it is the seasons of pain and difficulty and struggle and sorrow that that kind of like dark night of the soul that that is where a lot of like growth and maturity did eventually come from and i don't think i would ever ask for it or wish it on anyone but i can certainly point to and say oh man god god did a lot of growing in me in that season that's good ellie holcomb a singer songwriter uh, said this just uh, really r- kind of mirrors what you were just saying. Naturally afraid of pain, humans want to skip over the hard things, Holcomb said, but often it's in entering those broken places that we see the power of the gospel. Yeah, that's and, true. Uh, that's so powerful. So 
in the, the 30 seconds we have, what is kind of one word that you would give to people who are listening right now who are really struggling with the brokenness of life? We need to be okay with lament. The Bible is filled with it. The Psalms are filled with lament. I think crying out to God is as much worship as anything. Mm. And I think so often we're sort of pre-programmed to only think of like the hand-raising like statements of victory as worship, but like asking God, where are you? What are you doing? What it is? It, you're right in line with the psalmist, with Jeremiah, with the book of Lamentations. Like, I think it's worth not only just like being okay with it, but actually entering into it and seeing even our lament and our pain yeah. as an act of worship. That's really good. If you're suffering, we'd love to be there for you. You can reach out to us on Facebook at the, uh, the common good radio show. Uh, or on Twitter at Common Good Talk. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Soraya Lewis is a Food for the Poor employee in our Haitian office in Port-au-Prince. Soraya, there's not a lot of news coverage about what's happening in Haiti at the present moment. Can you give us a firsthand account of what's going on, what the situation is? What's going on right now is that there's just a lot of turmoil and it's affected the lives of Haitians everywhere around the country. There's a food shortage, a lot of insecurity. And it's just very chaotic to live in Haiti right now. Life for the average Haitian family has been just uncertain because waking up on a daily and not knowing if you're going to be able to put food on the table is just the worst feeling. And it's it's constant uncertainty because we don't know when things are going to get better. We don't really know where to turn to just have more peace of mind. So extreme uh, lack of food because of the drought, crops aren't growing, livestock is dying, food prices just unreachable. Most people can't afford to feed their family. I know the water situation is also a huge concern. Talk a little bit about that. About a month ago, I was in Cognillon where Food for the Poor intervened rapidly because there was a water crisis there. It was painful to watch, really. People just lining up the entire day, just waiting to find water. What they did was they had water trucks um, responding to the emergency. So the truck would go by through the city the entire day and stop at various points to distribute water. But it just felt like their lives just revolved around the idea of being able to find water. That's that's all they did. That's not normal. It was like nothing I've seen before. Again, that translates what a lot of Haitian families are going through, not just about water, but also about food, also about basic health, just not being able to go to a hospital because hospitals are closed, because doctors are not getting paid, and they refuse to go in because they're not able to support their families themselves. People are waking up every day and not being able to meet their basic needs. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and uh, we are excited again to be joined by Todd Chapman. Todd is uh, from Food for the Poor, and that story you heard there was trying to paint the picture of the humanitarian crisis uh, going on in the nation of Haiti. So first of all, Todd, thank you so much for uh, joining us again today. Hey, thanks, guys. Always love to be with you. Absolutely. Uh, That was just powerful to hear. Can you talk about what Food for the Poor, especially for those who haven't heard uh, heard us talk about it yet, uh, what is Food for the Poor doing? What is the opportunity that people have to make a difference in the nation of Haiti? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, first of all, a little uh, background on Food for the Poor, uh, because I never want to assume that uh, any of our listeners have heard of Food for the Poor, even though we are one of the largest international relief and development organizations in the United States, right. uh, 38 years old, uh, and uh, have been in, in Haiti actually for more than 30 years working hand in hand with the local church. But a lot of people haven't heard from uh, food for the Poor and don't really realize the scope of all the work that God does through Food for the Poor, frankly, because we just don't spend a lot of money, uh, you know, advertising uh, across the country. Instead, we choose to give that money to the poor uh, and make a, a difference in the developing world. And so maybe you've never heard of Food for the Poor, although I'm pretty confident if you've listened to uh, 1160 Hope for any length of time uh, over the last few years, you've probably from time to time uh, heard about or maybe even been a part of our, our many partnerships uh, with uh, with the station. and uh, But basically, Food for the Poor, our, our, our foundational verse is Matthew 25, uh, 34, where, where basically Jesus said, you know, when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And uh, so, uh, you know, for 38 years now, we have just partnered with uh, the church in countries like Haiti and Guatemala, about 18 countries around the world now. And uh, we have uh, just sought to minister to the abject poor, people that are trying to survive in some of the poorest countries in the world. And they're trying to live on maybe a dollar, two dollars a day. And uh, the only way that uh, we've actually been able to to make a difference is is just because of the generosity of people like our listeners, people like you that have, uh, you know, you hear about the need and you choose to give a gift of uh, $100 or $200 or $500 or $27 a month, whatever God lays on your heart. And uh, with your generous gifts, we're able to work with local churches, local pastors, and turn your gifts into food, into clean, safe drinking water. We've built uh, thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of of homes uh, across 38 years, uh, which is another huge need uh, in the, in these countries. And, you know, in short, this is an opportunity for you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And in this case, guys, in Haiti, which is the poorest country in this side of the world and going through a really, really hard time right now with uh, this food crisis. All right. So the number to call right now is 855-901-4673. That's 855-901-4673. Or you can go to 1160hope.com. Click the Haiti Humanitarian Crisis there at the top. And uh, here's the ask. $320 of one-time gift, which breaks down to about $27 a month, provides food for a year and water for life for one family. Maybe you're thinking... And we can do way more than that. Maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's a business. Maybe it's a couple of families in your block. But we are really, really calling on our common good family uh, to care for these other families. And I'm wondering, in just a couple of minutes, Todd, could you tell us a bit about what it's like to sort of be on the ground to see some of what you're talking about? Yeah, so I've been to Haiti uh, more than a dozen times in my nearly 10 years with Food for the Poor, and it's it really is just gut-wrenching poverty. Uh, I, I mean, and I've traveled to a number of uh, third-world countries, but Haiti's uh, worse than anything I've ever seen and, and actually getting worse now than it uh, has over the last been in the last 10 years or so. Uh, as a matter of fact, many experts have said that uh, things in Haiti now are worse than they were in the wake of the, the earthquake of 2010. Oh, wow. That was a bad scene then. But And, you know, it's... Um, it's it's pretty staggering. You as you drive around, uh, whether it be the streets of Port-au-Prince or out into the countryside, you see people uh, desperately doing anything they can to just survive another day. Mm. 
And so, like in Port-au-Prince in particular, it's this beehive of activity. I mean, it's a city of about 4 million people, and the streets are just jam-packed with people carrying stuff, and they've got their little roadside stands set up, and they're trying to sell stuff. I mean, everything from baggies of water to fruit to furniture to, uh, you know, uh, little containers of, like, Gatorade-sized containers of gas. I mean, you name it, everybody's got this hustle going on. Mm. But I can't, you know, every time I'm there, I'm just like, man, this is just... An exercise in futility because everybody's working so hard, but nobody's getting ahead. Mm. They're just trying to survive day to day. And then if you go into a home of, uh, you know, just pretty much anybody in that country, because 90 percent of this country of 11 million people literally uh, lives in on less than two dollars a day. And so it's the same story, uh, you know, whether in the city or outside the city. If you go into the the house of a typical poor person there, um, it's always the same thing. A lot of kids, never enough food. Uh, They live in little ramshackle huts uh, that are not fit for, you know, human uh, occupation. And oftentimes they're sleeping on the ground or maybe the whole family sleeping on a little mattress. They never have enough food to eat. Work is nearly impossible to find. And so it is an absolutely desperate situation. And honestly, guys, it's it's hard not to just you know throw up your hands and say, "Well, mm-hmm. this is hopeless." Yeah. You know, what, how, how's this ever going to get any better? But we can't we can't do that, right? We can't do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, because we always have hope in Jesus Christ, and uh, you know, absent that, Haiti would be a very very hopeless situation. But uh, across thirty eight uh, years of working in in eighteen countries and thirty of those years in Haiti, we have seen a difference. Uh, that you can make as a donor to food for the poor, uh, one family at a time, one person at a time, and so that's why we're coming to you today and just saying, you know what, don't don't get focused on the big problem. Focus on the difference you can make mm-hmm. for one person, for one mom, for one family. And when you consider the fact that for less than a dollar a day, you can lift a family right now that literally is is in a situation where they're not eating on a daily basis. You can solve that problem for them if you just would see it in your heart to make a commitment of $27 a month. And that's what we're asking you to do mm-hmm. right now. And, guys, I'm really excited because when we started uh, this campaign earlier this month, we had about 30-some families that we had kind of uh, earmarked for the 1160 Hope family. And we're down to 10 families now. So nice. we are almost done with this. And I believe that we could wrap this up in just a, a real short amount of time. It would only take just a few people saying, you know what, I've heard you talking about it. It's a busy time of year. And I'm sorry I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to do it right now. So call 855-901-4673. 855-901-4673. We're asking, would you prayerfully consider making a commitment of $27 a month for the next 12 months? And with that, we're going to be able to feed a family, give them clean, safe drinking water for life. Absolutely. You can also go to 1160hope.com. That other voice you hear is Todd Chapman. He is with Food for the Poor. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to 
to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common, our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. You can find us on Facebook, and we're about to put an article up there, or about to discuss an article that's up there that I think you're going to have some thoughts on. Uh, you can do that at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. Also on Twitter, at Common Good Talk, online at 1160hope.com. And as always, you can find our podcast wherever it is uh, you find our podcast. And, uh, you know, this article, I, it, there's many different thoughts on it, but let me tell you what it's titled. It is out of finance101.com. It says these are insanely rich religious leaders. And so it gives it counts down from 25 to one of various Christian leaders in what their net worth is. So that's always somewhat dangerous and it's always somewhat uh, interesting. Uh, and without getting into names, I suppose what I would say is no, I'm, I'm going to get into names. <laughs> OK, <laughs> but go ahead. Sorry. Uh, a lot of authors, a lot of pastors, a lot of Christian leaders on here uh, are having a net worth well, well, well into the millions. Uh, and so uh, like the top 10, uh, 18 million, 20 million, 25 million, 25 million, 60 million, 100 million. Wait, stop looking. I want to say some names and let you guess. Oh, we're going to play a fun game. Does that sound fun to you? Oh, I do like this game. All right. Should I say? Yeah, I'll say the name, and then you guess the net worth. Okay. See, some of these I know you already looked at. Uh, uh, but I didn't I didn't really look at them very closely. You didn't. Okay. I want to play this game. Uh, all right. Benny Hinn. 60 million. Holy cow. Exactly. On the nose. Six, oh, 60 million. Boom. You, <laughs> nice. Uh, Rick Warren. Uh, 20 million. 25 million. Mm. <laughs> I didn't know he had those ready. All Do you right. think that's all from his radio show that he does right before us? Um, yeah, it's probably. There's a lot not of, right before us, but he's early <laughs> in the show. <laughs> TD Jakes. Oh, that's going to be a high one. 75. Uh, 18. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> way off. Way off. Uh, let's see. How about Paula White Kane? Uh, 60. Uh, I already forgot to look. Five. Um, oh, she needs to get going. She needs to get going. Uh, how about uh, Mark Driscoll? Oh, well, you told me this already. I did. Two. 2.5. Okay. So, yeah. What? <laughs> he gets just the ka See, some of these names I don't actually even know. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. That's a whole other discussion, actually, that these some of these names here are among the wealthiest Christian leaders, and you and I are both pastors, and we've never even heard of them. Right. That's pretty crazy. How about Joyce Meyer? 40. Uh, eight. Oh, okay. <laughs> George Foreman, who I did not know was a religious leader. Oh, he's got the grill. That's 250. Uh, 300. Oh, I was close on that one. How about Kenneth Copeland? We did a segment on him. Remember when he uh, he kind of spooked a reporter, right? He, oh, that was weird. That's right. Okay, so you want to guess his net worth? Uh, 100. 300. Woo, Kenneth. Kenneth Copeland has an estimated net worth of 300 
million dollars. That's insane. How about Victoria Osteen? So is this with her husband or are they separate? Separate. 20. 100. Really? Isn't that wild? Uh, isn't he listed on there as 100 also? Yeah, so maybe it is together then? No, maybe not. No, hold <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Maybe not. That's fascinating. Okay, that's enough of that game. What do you think of all these? So this is the interesting conversation. It is, should we care? Uh, <laughs> does this Is this a larger indictment? So uh, it is, you know what? Good on you, right? You built a business. You built some. You wrote a book. Built I'm playing business. devil's advocate. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, you you built something successful, uh, and you know as long as you're not. And some of these people, I think, we would say are are scamming people out of money. But even, let's say you you're not one of those people. Uh, you wrote a book. You get paid to speak. So what do we care about how much money you make? On the other hand, <laughs> uh, it does seem like the Bible has a lot to say about money and wealth, and that this seems to fly uh, contrary to that a little bit. So. Which which of those would you land on? <laughs> this feels like a trap. Um, but just when you read the article, what is it? What does it do to your soul? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't love it. I do like I know some of the context of Rick Warren, who's now paid back every year he's ever worked yep. at his church, yep. and he tithes ninety five percent or something crazy. So I know that you know for guys like him, there's also a ton of generosity. So I don't want to in any way paint all of them as sort of like. Just money grubbing. Yeah, right. That's, yeah. that's really not the case. Um, but some of them are. <laughs> <laughs> Which ones, Brian? Which ones nope. do you think are the most greedy? Nope. I, I, do, I do just have to say at its core, I, again, I'm really not opposed to people making money. Um, making this kind of money, though, specifically as a church leader, I do have a problem with. Yeah. George Foreman wants to sell a bunch of grills. Yeah. Good on you. I'm actually, I have no problem with that at all. I, I think that's fine. I don't think the grills are great, but, uh, you know. Teach his own. Yeah. Uh, but to like do so from the position of like shepherding a flock, like yeah. of of being the pastor teacher of a local expression, a local church community to to make that kind of money to me seems I have a really hard time just picturing Jesus being like, I'm cool with that. Yeah. That's sort of my that's my acid yeah. test sort of like. And again, my perspective is very limited too. like my understanding of what Jesus would or wouldn't be OK with. Is anyone's guess, right? I'm not saying I have the, uh, you know, the 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 authoritative position on that. I, I just have a hard time picturing Jesus giving the thumbs up to a couple of private jets or six houses or <laughs> Jesus shoes. Or sh- right, exactly. All of that stuff. It just make, you know, and somebody might say, yeah, hey, get with the times, man. It's just normal. Or it's they have to convey a certain level of confidence, a certain level of success. I think those are all pretty weak arguments, to be honest. I feel like yep. at the end of the day to to be formed in Christ likeness, to follow this rabbi Jesus means he's often saying you need to die to yourself here. Mm-hmm. You need to let go of that there. And sometimes depictions like this uh, just seem so counter to that and get with the times is probably part of the problem <laughs> yeah, of the problem. yeah probably but uh i totally agree with you man i feel like um it would be really difficult uh to preach a a um a biblical centric message and to talk about what jesus talked about and do it from a standpoint of having uh, a lot of uh a lot of a salary of this kind. Like it almost makes me think that that in some ways would change what you're able to teach. Hmm. Uh, secondly, uh, I just don't see a lot of, uh, I should put it this way. 
I feel like in the Gospels, when I read them, Jesus is often taking on the rich. He never says you can't be rich, that it's wrong. He speaks of wealth as a huge hurdle, right? As a difficult, almost a cross to bear. And um, and so for the le- for pastors who are now also teaching this, right, to be the ones who are making this kind of money with this kind of lifestyle, uh, I think is very difficult. It should not also surprise us that a large number of people on this list are prosperity gospel people. Uh, that's true. And I think that also goes hand in hand. And so I think it's just wrought with danger. The flip side could be, okay, pastor, what do you think is the right amount? All right. I don't know. I don't think there is a right number for right. that necessarily. In the same way that I don't think the New Testament actually speaks of tithing. I don't think it's about this percentage. Paul talks about being generous, joyful, sacrificial, mm-hmm. proportional. Those are the words that he uses. So it's like, you know, to live if you were living in the Bay Area, that number might be different than if you were living, you know, in middle America. If you're living in Arkansas somewhere. You know what I mean? Like I think that there's room for that. I don't think it's about Brian or Ian yeah. deciding on a dollar amount. I think we can probably all agree some of these dollar amounts are a little crazy. Yep, yep. And uh, yeah, I just think it's really hard. I just think it sends such also a bad message. Uh, what was it yesterday we talked about? Um, uh, Better work stuff about churches shouldn't be tax exempt. And usually what people hold up are these ministry leaders who are making millions of dollars, who yeah. have multi-million dollar homes and jets going, why are they getting tax breaks? Right. Uh, I think that oftentimes it's these leaders who are making a ton of money and flaunting at some of them uh, that really are a black eye to the church yeah. that, that caused people to go out there and be like, see, this is just about money. Right. This isn't about you say you follow this Jesus. Well, look what he, they even know. Like he wouldn't have done this. Right. And it's just really hard. It's it, it comes across as hypocrisy and uh, and very difficult. Well, and that's the problem that we've become so comfortable with differentiating between what we would see Jesus doing and what we expect from Christian leaders. Yeah. That's, I think, part of the problem that, mm. that people that, you know, maybe even admittedly don't have Bible degrees and don't necessarily have experience necessarily yeah. in a role like this would say your Jesus looks very different than your Christian pastor. Yeah. And we're, you know, I think becoming increasingly okay with that, which is maybe part of the problem. And what we haven't talked to you even about is the, is the, what this says about Christian celebrity culture. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's, it's another aspect of that. Well, we'd love to hear what you've got to say. You can do that at our Facebook page. You're listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Are you, are you okay there? Yes, yeah, I am. I know the name of our show, let me tell you. My goodness. Uh, that voice you hear mocking me is Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're glad to have you joining us today. Uh, and we're thrilled to be joined on the phone right now uh, by Phil Vischer. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad I could be here. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. You, uh, you out there, you might know Phil as the creator of of Veggie Tales, but what we want to talk to Phil about today uh, is the debut of his lifelong passion project. It says here, a kid's Bible uh, for a new generation called the Laugh and Learn Bible uh, for Kids. So let's start there. Um, it, it speaks here about this being a passion of yours. Uh, t- talk to us a little bit about your passion behind this kid's Bible and why you uh, so desperately wanted to create it. Yeah, so I uh, I wrote Veggie Tales for about ten years, uh, most of the episodes of Veggie Tales, and after that, I felt like God wanted me to take kids deeper into the Bible because you can mm. only go so deep in theology with happy, bouncy, talking vegetables. <laughs> so I, to, I think I need to go a little deeper now. Let's see what that goes like. 
Um, and so I did a series, a video series called What's in the Bible that walked kids all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and, and tried to answer big questions about the Bible and kind of give them an overview of the whole arc of Scripture. And whenever you teach something, especially if you teach it to kids, you find out if you really know it. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah. And so I ended up learning so much about the Bible by attempting to teach the entire thing to kids in this video series that uh, we started talking after that, that we should try to put that into an actual kid's storybook Bible so that kids could you know, carry around something in their hands and sit down with their parents before bedtime or after dinner you know, and read a story from the Bible, but also get the big picture of the Bible. Right. And that's really what, what motivates me is that quite often, you know, if kids go to Sunday school or if they pick up books you know, on Bible stories, they get these individual slices of the Bible. Yeah. You know, they get a story here and a story there and a story here, and there's Noah's Ark with animals, and there's <laughs> Daniel in the lion's den with animals, and there's Jesus with a sheep. You know, all these animal stories. <laughs> right, right. Animals. And, and always animals. <laughs> always with the animals. Uh, Jonah and the whale, another big one with an animal. For some reason, Balaam's donkey never makes it, <laughs> I can't figure out why. So that's in your Bible? That is... <laughs> uh, no. Um, <laughs> but what, what kids are missing is, is the connective tissue that hmm. strings all these stories into one big story. So the Bible turns into like a photo album yeah. of snapshots rather than an actual movie of the story of God and what he's done for us. And so what I've been trying to do both with what's in the Bible and now with the Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids is string all these stories together to show that it tells one big story and then help kids find their own place inside that story so they can be a part of it. I feel like I need to read this Bible. Yes. Like that's so. Uh, many of you should know if you don't already that Phil also hosts a brilliant podcast called The Holy Post, and I think I think I remember hearing you talk about this and even some of the skittishness around. Like, can I create a Bible? Is there extra pressure when you like add the word Bible to something? Like, have you received any pushback from that uh, yeah, at all? Yeah, I, I actually I, I pushed back. I <laughs> people would bring it up. Like, let's do a VeggieTales Bible. And I just thought, oh, no, oh, I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> Um, but this this works much better because it's not vegetables. You're not, you're right, not yeah, right. again, one of our one of our VeggieTales rules from day one was we will not portray Jesus as a vegetable. Right, uh, right. And that would have made a VeggieTales Bible very, very difficult yeah. to do. So this is, you know, human art uh, representations of Bible characters, and it works out much better. So I'm, I'm happy that uh, it took this long to get around to it, because I'm also more mature. You know, I started <laughs> writing VeggieTales when I was 25, and wow. now I'm 53. So more than half of my life has gone by since I started writing VeggieTales. And uh, if you're walking with Jesus that long, you're going to grow at least a little bit. And when you sit down to write something deeper, you've got more depth to draw on. Yeah, yeah. So Ian made a joke about saying that he needs to read this Bible. Um, One of the things we found at our church is sometimes with the newest believers, the best introduction is like with a children's Bible that we trust. Do you have that? Could you see that being used in this way, too, for people really young in the faith, people who don't grasp that? Are you hearing that? We saw that with Veggie Tales. I also saw that with the What's in the Bible series, that adult small groups were going through my What's in the Bible series of videos, which are wow. designed for children and have puppets and animation. <laughs> um, if you, first of all, if you give, you know, go to a nine-year-old and say, hey, congratulations, you're nine now. Here's a full text 
NIV or King James right. or ESV Study Bible. You know, good luck. Have fun. <laughs> There's some weird stuff in there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm partly joking, but partly not. They're going to die in the desert just like the Israelites. Right. They're going to make it to Leviticus, <laughs> and then they're just going to die. So we need to somehow tell the story of the Bible in a way that they can access, that they can get through it, that they can survive to get to the end. And right. then when they get to a full-text Bible later on, you know, and they open up to the Psalms or they open up to the Gospels, they know where they are yeah. in the story because they've already gone through the story. And that is true of parents, too, <laughs> because we make a mistake in church sometimes when we say, hey, young parents, you need to be discipling your kids right. without right. ever asking, uh, wait a minute, did anyone disciple you? Mm. You can't ask parents to teach their kids how to ride a bike if no one taught the parents how to right. ride a bike. Yeah. So yeah. what I try to do with my resources is let's learn this together as a family. You know, parents, you don't have to say, I didn't know this stuff. Or you can say, you can confess to your spouse right. that you didn't know this stuff. <laughs> you don't have to confess to your kids. But when a family learns something together, whether it's by reading a book or watching a video, they can reinforce it for each other. Yeah. You know, the parents can reinforce it for their kids, and the kids can reinforce it for their parents, and everybody learns, and it becomes foundational to the whole family. I love that. All right, so I had a mentor when I was young, when I first started off preaching, and he said, uh, until you can describe your sermon in 30 seconds to an eight-year-old, you're not done writing it yet. And that lesson so stood out to me. And you mentioned it earlier that yeah. like in writing this for children, you yourself actually learned a bunch. Can you talk us a little bit about what was that experience like learning to write this for the audience of a child? Like what was that like just as a writer, as a creative, like what did you learn about yourself or the process in doing that? Yeah, I, I'm able to do that. And I'm not sure why I have easy access to uh, myself as like a second grader. <laughs> That's, a second <laughs> That's a gift. That's good. Girl. I guess so, because whenever, so I'll, I'll, I'll pull out, you know, a, a big study Bible, and I'll pull out commentaries, and I'll, I'll talk to friends of mine that are Old Testament and New Testament scholars and ask them questions and then kind of collect their answers and now think, now, how would I explain that to second grade Phil? And so I'll try, and then I'll read it, and second grade Phil will say, that didn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, this word, I don't understand this word, I didn't understand that word, this Christian-y phrase that you threw out at me, I've right. heard it in church, but no one's ever defined it, so I have no idea, you know, what washed in the blood means, yeah. that sounds hideous. <laughs> so I'm able to say, okay, second grade Phil, what do I need to change about this? And second grade Phil says, everything! Just start over. Do it again. And then I keep oh, that's doing so it good. He says it's okay. Yeah. So I read a quote here from you. You said, after all, we know kids love big, exciting, redemptive stories. That's why superheroes, Star Wars and Harry Potter are so popular. Uh, I love that. And so often we don't at all use the Bible that way with kids. Was that kind of a driving factor for you here to help them see it kind of on a grand scale like Harry Potter or like oh, yeah. Star Wars? Yes, yes. If you, if, you, if you can't see the big picture that the Bible is telling, this big story, yeah. um, it's too easy to, to turn the Bible into just a book of rules right. you know, or a, a book of tips. You know, here's how to have a better marriage. Here's how to manage your finances, according to the Bible. And that's so uninspiring yeah, to right. turn the Bible into tips and rules. So no wonder kids are turning to Harry Potter and they're mm. turning to Star Wars and they're turning. They just want to be part of a big story. Mm. Uh, more than 2000 weddings a year 
happen on Disney property. Wow. Okay, that's, that's like almost six weddings a day wow. happen on Disney property. And now <laughs> you can actually buy a wedding dress to match your favorite Disney princess. And of you course. can outfit all of your bridesmaids <laughs> as Disney princesses and get to have your wedding with Cinderella's castle in the background. And it's not because we're failing to grow up. It's that because we're growing up in a world that tells us there's no big story anymore mm. that you can be a part of. So we're looking for fictitious stories to be a part of because we can't stand the idea that there's nothing behind the curtain, that there's no magic in the universe. So the Bible is the original story that explains the magic in the universe, you know, that that, that there's someone behind the curtain that loves us. And when we and we fail to tell that story in a way that inspires kids, we shouldn't be surprised when they run off to other stories. Oh, that's so good. Uh, you're listening to Phil Vischer joining us. He is uh, talking to us about the new Bible he's uh, just put out called Laugh and Learn Bible uh, for Kids. Uh, we are very excited. Phil is going to stay with us for another segment because we have all sorts of things to ask him. So that's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I'm so there you go. Welcome back to the Common Good did on he, AIM 11. Did he run that by us first? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> surprise. Oh, my goodness. Oh, alongside Ian Simpkins, Boy. my name is Brian Brown. <laughs> and that, that surprised voice you hear there is also Phil Vischer. Uh, Phil is joining us on the phone today. Uh, if you missed the first segment with Phil, make sure to go listen to the podcast as we talked about his laugh and learn Bible for kids. Um, but Phil, uh, I could tell you that there was a lot of excitement in my house uh, when when we read, not just with my kids, but also with my wife and I, when we heard that VeggieTales is relaunching. Uh, so why don't you tell us some more about that good news? Yeah, so um, I uh, lost ownership of VeggieTales way back in 2003, so 16 years ago. Wow. The whole generation of kids has grown up since I uh, yeah. was driving the car with, with Bob and Larry in it. Um, it's since then, VeggieTales has been owned by, I think, four different companies. No Because kidding. everything gets bought and sold, yeah, a gazillion times. And I'd kind of given up on it. I'd kind of, you know, the very last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, when the Ark of the Covenant <laughs> goes into the box. Yes, yes. And then goes into the giant warehouse. <laughs> and they think, well, that's it. That's yeah. it. <laughs> that was kind of in my mind what had happened to Bob and Larry. Mm-hmm. And they were in the box being wheeled into the giant. And, and uh, because the company that owned uh, VeggieTales was bought by NBC Universal, which is owned by Comcast, which Got is it. one of the biggest media companies in the world. And I thought, well, that's the end of that. Yeah, right. Nobody, right. There, <laughs> nobody there has time to think about Bob the Tomato <laughs> and Larry the Cucumber and, and Christian homeschoolers that love them. Right. So I, <laughs> and then I got a call from the Trinity Broadcast Network, which is the largest religious broadcaster in the world. And they had approached NBC Universal to say, "Hey, are you going to do anything with Veggie Tales? And if you're not, could we do something with Veggie Tales?" They approached and, them first. Uh, you, yes. No yes, kidding. Yeah. And and Universal said, "Well, we won't give them to you or sell them to you, but we'll rent them to you if wow. people want, because <laughs> um, that's how Hollywood works. Yeah. You can rent our stuff, and then we'll still own it." So they pitched doing a TV series with VeggieTales, and they reached out to me. TBN and Universal reached out to me and said, hey, would you help creatively with this new series? And in particular, could you make it feel like VeggieTales used to feel back in the olden days? Wow. Because that's the veggies that we like. 
And I said, you know, I've been hoping that someone might ask me that one of these days. <laughs> yes, I'd be happy to get involved and make VeggieTales feel like it used to feel back in the olden days. So we've been working on it for a year now, uh, producing 18 new episodes that will be for TV that will air on TBN and then also go to streaming platforms and hopefully other places, too. Well, as one of those former Homer, Homer, homeschooled, 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 also Homer, we weren't weren't allowed to watch Simpsons. Uh, I I could not be more excited. I did also want to ask you, though, we we mentioned earlier that you have a podcast that I legitimately think is brilliant. I'd love to know a little bit about the podcast. What's kind of the vision for it? How is it different from other things you've done in the past? Just kind of let people know that maybe don't have any idea that you have a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's called the Holy Post Podcast. You can find it on iTunes. Uh, I, I host it with a friend of mine, Sky Jitani, who's a pastor and has a seminary degree, and also an editor. Has been editor of, of a couple of different Christian magazines. A really bright guy. Um, and what we're really trying to do there is help Christians navigate an increasingly post-Christian culture. Uh, where, you know, everything just seems upside down and we don't know what to do with all these issues that come up. And is it, you know, is the church dying? How does the church need to change to adapt? Uh, Sky's a pretty well respected thinker on some of those issues. And I know how to be funny. (laughs) (laughs) Is that, that's the arrangement? arrangement. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's the arrangement. Oh, that's And I come up with news stories that it's sometimes they're just completely bizarre and have nothing to do with anything, but they tickle me. <laughs> I love it. How frustrated I can get Sky. And then Sky <laughs> interviews guests. You know, we've had everyone on from, you know, N.T. Wright to Oz Guinness to uh, Russell Moore, the head of the Southern Baptist yeah. uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, David Kinnaman, the pollster. And, and we're just talking about issues. You know, what is going on in the church? Why does it feel like it's such a mess? How is politics infecting uh, evangelical Christianity and, and what can we do about it. So it gets uh, kind of interesting, but it's a whole lot of fun. I, I do just have to say how happy it makes me that there's a podcast somewhere where N.T. Wright is being interviewed and there's a segment called News of the Butt. <laughs> the fact that those would be in the same episode makes me there's, so eternally happy. No, I'm not saying... I'm not, we're not saying there's a connection between... No, right, right, right. Not the same segment. segment. That's not what you're saying, right? right not you're at all. Not at all. That. No, big fan of the Anglicans. Yeah, yeah, we did a story... I just... There was a story about, like, like uh, bug butts or something. No, it was turtle butts. The first story was about turtle butts. How turtles actually breathe through their butts when they're hibernating in the mud, and I couldn't believe it. It was so wonderful, so I had to share it on the podcast. And then somebody said, "Hey, give us more news of the butt." And said, okay. Somebody <laughs> said that. That's yeah, awesome. Our, this is my favorite day. <laughs> it's funny how those segments go. Oh, that's funny. Some people say, oh, we love the news of the butt. And other people say, would you please stop hearing the news of the butt? Yep. I can nope. understand that. Uh, I want to ask you also uh, back about VeggieTales. Is it does it surprise you the staying power that that has had? Like generations, like my my kids still watch it, and as even as they get older, it like harkens them back to when they were younger. And now people I know with younger kids, their kids are still watching it. It must make you proud for the staying power. But does it does it surprise you? Yeah, yeah, it does surprise me, and it's and it it makes me happy and also a little bit sad mm. at the same time. And I'll, I'll explain why. It makes me happy just to think, you know, 
I thought of something that has stuck in the culture yeah. this long. Hmm. That is so cool. You know, that, I, that I've told these stories and I've worked with other people to tell these stories over the years. And they're just, they're not going away. Yeah. They just keep doing more good. Um, it makes me a little bit sad because in the, in the general market, in the mainstream world, things don't last that long. Because in a few years, someone comes up with something even better. Right. You know, and so p- part of me is looking at, like, it's been 20 years, guys, 25 years. You know, isn't anyone going to come up with something better? Oh, interesting. An audience. Okay. Yeah, so it gets me a little bit discouraged about the state of, of, you know, just Christian creativity and our ability to really compete uh, with mainstream media. Well, and that's, that's a perfect segue, because I wanted to ask you this for a while. What? encouragement or hope or challenge would you give because Brian and I are both pastors and so often it feels like the church is way behind the curve when it comes to truly like engaging artists and creatives. What challenge or encouragement would you give the people listening that feel like they have this creative energy or spark, but they don't, they don't know where to put it or they don't know what to do with it. Like, do you have any words of wisdom for them? Yeah. It is so easy to make stuff. (laughs) Yeah. When I, when I was a kid and I wanted to make a film, I had to borrow my grandfather's Super 8 millimeter film camera and go buy film stock. It was like 20 bucks for three minutes of film. Right. You know, and I'm nine years old and I had to learn how to run the camera and develop the film and then cut up the film to edit it with a splicer and with tape. Right. And today, I mean, you can make a feature film on your iPhone. Right. It's insane. So if you have a hankering to make something, Make something. Yeah. Uh, most people are getting so far ahead of themselves and saying, yeah, but how will I make money? You know, mm-hmm. How will I make a yeah. living? I want to make a living doing this. When, and, and this is what frustrates me a little bit. When people in, in the secular world, when they want to be dancers or they want to be photographers, they move to New York City or they move to L.A. and they work at Starbucks and right. they work as waitresses and they just work on their art you know, without worrying about how they're going to pay the bills or whether their art will ever pay the bills. And because we've been so committed to the idea of family in the church and you have to be a good provider for your kids and you have to have kids and you have to have a house in the suburbs and they need to have uh, soccer lessons and they need all of the trappings right. that we can't imagine. How could I be an artist and ever provide the life that I think I'm supposed to provide for my kids. Right. And, you know, and, and the funny thing is we don't say the same thing about missionaries. We don't yeah. say, now, if you become a missionary, how are your kids going to have soccer practice? You <laughs> That's <know>? true. That's <laughs> so good. That's so good. How are good. you going to have a, a, you know, a three-bedroom house in the suburbs yeah. if you're a missionary in Bangladesh? We don't, for some reason, we respect missions much higher than we respect arts, mm, even though good. they're both outreaches to a world that's hurting. That's, that's so great. Good. Well, Phil, we could just keep going on here, but... Uh, we are so grateful that you've joined us. You can uh, catch up with Phil's work multiple different places. We already talked about the Holy Post podcast. Watch for the uh, new run of VeggieTales that's coming. And most importantly for our conversation today, check out the Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids. You can visit laughandlearnbible.com and learn more about it and find out all the different places you can get it. Phil, we're so thankful. Thank you for taking the time uh, and spending it with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. Yep. Have a great day. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. That music can only mean one thing. We are going to go into interweb insanity. Uh, We are going to read stories uh, from the minds of our producers, uh, PJ 
and Keith Conrad. They have picked these stories. We have not seen them. Uh, they usually make us laugh, sometimes make us cringe, uh, but we're right there alongside you. Uh, you go first, sir. Here we go, Florida. Man arrested for swinging samurai sword at another man during a fight over trash. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I'm just going to read that again. That's my favorite <laughs> sentence today. Man arrested for swinging samurai sword at another man during a fight over trash. A Florida man has been arrested and charged with attempted murder. Oh, jeez. After swinging a samurai sword at another man during a dispute over trash. I just read that. A Broadway County Sheriff's Office said Curtis Miller, 54, 54, I was not expecting that age, was caught swinging the sword on home surveillance video July 15th during a fight with another man over a disputed dump cart. Both men had coveted the cart after rummaging through a trash pile outside a vacant house in Oakland Park, Florida. Statements made by police claim that the man swung the sword in the direction of the alleged victim, Todd Beavers. Beavers had arrived at the site after spotting the apparent... The apparently tempting trash pile during an evening jog around the neighborhood. Reach for the sky. Okay. <laughs> Ohio woman gets prison for leading officers on chase, hitting cruisers because she was late to work. Uh, Amani Edwards, age 23, was charged with failure to comply and multiple counts of felonious assault. Thelonious. Yes, Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Judge. That's a long title. <laughs> Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Judge Michael Shaughnessy wow. sentenced Edwards to four years and nine months in prisons. Her license will be suspended for 15 years, and she has to pay $26,000. A state trooper tried to pull her over during rush hour on March 22nd for a window tint uh, and a false registration, but she refused to stop, according to patrol. Police said Edwards rammed into two cruisers and a patrol SUV. The chase ended later when she was forced off the road and hit a utility pole. I don't know what you were thinking, the judge said. At a time when law enforcement is under such scrutiny, your lawyer's right. They showed incredible restraint. The incident was captured on dash camera video, which was played in the court. Uh, Newburgh Heights police said Edwards did this because she claimed she was late for work. Was that wrong? (laughs) Should I not have done that? All right, Germany bottoms up, fires out. German man douses fire with beer. Oh, it's a happy story. Yes. A German motorist is being credited. You're already nodding. Did you hear this story? Somewhere? No. Oh, I'm like, yes, good. A German motorist is being credited for his quick thinking after his engine caught fire on the Autobahn. He turned to turned to a slightly different foam extinguisher to douse the flames. Bottles of beer. Police told the DPA news agency Wednesday that the man was on the highway near the town of Hosbach in Bavaria the day before he went. Uh, he smelled something odd. Pulling over, the man spotted flames under the hood of his car, quickly grabbed bottles of beer from a case in the car and quenched the fire. Authorities say the fire department responded, but there was nothing left for them to do. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. <laughs> that's that's becoming a regular. And it was a solution. I'm it's true. That it's one. not wrong. Colorado, United Airlines flight diverted to Denver after passenger gets stuck in the bathroom. Oh, no. I saw this on the Today Show today. Ugh. Uh, United Airlines Flight 1554 was flying from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco when it made an unscheduled stop in Denver. Video shot by a fellow passenger shows crews trying to get the bathroom door open. We'll get you out soon, okay? A crew member is heard saying to the stuck passenger. The stuck door was eventually open and the passenger was able to get out of the bathroom safely. The flight was scheduled to be back in the air two hours later. What kind of plane is it? Oh, it's a big, pretty white plane mm-hmm. with red stripes and curtains in the window and wheels, and it looks like a big Tylenol. This is maybe the most repeat drops we've had. Yeah. That's a, yeah boy, it's Friday. A lot of way to end it's the Friday. week. <laughs> All right. Australia. 
guy who invented Labradoodle, I released a Frankenstein's monster. Mm. Wow. What's not to like about a Labradoodle? I like Labradoodles. The breed has taken the world by storm since its invention in 1988 and was even considered by the Obamas as a possible choice of first puppy. But the man who invented it all those years ago now calls the move his, quote, life's regret. No. <laughs> Wally Conron. 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 Speaking to Australia's ABC News podcast, some of all parts last week said he opened a Pandora's box and released a Frankenstein's monster. The problem? Unethical, ruthless breeders who only care about big bucks and don't put the dog's health first. Oh, this is going to be sad. I find that the biggest majority of Labradoodles are either crazy or have a hereditary problem. Conron says, plus the world has since been inundated with other oodle breeds. Unscrupulous breeders are crossing poodles with inappropriate dogs simply so that they can say they were the first to do so. Alive. It's alive. It's alive. I mean, that was pretty inevitable, right? Yeah, That's, that was yeah, coming. For sure. A vet and multiple owners insist the Labradoodles are great, so let's end happy right there. Oh, thanks, Brian. Go get your Labradoodle. I just, I just wonder what inappropriate dogs was. <laughs> it's like dogs that are, like, smoking in oh, the boys' room or there something. There you go. Well, it's been a fun Friday. Uh, we hope that you have a great weekend. And join us again on Monday from 4 to 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This is The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.